Today was Rosh Chodesh Av, meaning the beginning of the new month of Av. Odds are that statement means very little to you. If you happen to know the Hebrew calendar is lunisolar, or as, as Rabbi Simon once taught me, the loony Jewish calendar. Lunisolar, all right. Moon, sun, you get it. Then you might know that there is a new moon overhead tonight, as with every new month. If you come from a certain kind of Jewish background, then you may associate the month of Av with the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av, which is indeed in just over a week. But it is not a well-known Jewish holiday in many circles. Odds are, the holiday of Rosh Chodesh Av could well have come and gone, and you would be none the wiser. There are 12 months every year, and with the exception of Rosh Hashanah, we don't really make a big deal out of them. Traditionally, every Rosh Chodesh, every new month, is a sacred occasion. There is nowhere in the world that this is more apparent than at the Kotel in Jerusalem, also known as the Western Wall. Each Rosh Chodesh, a group of Jews, carries a Torah scroll through Jerusalem to the Kotel to conduct a prayer service and read aloud from the Torah and recite the special prayers of the new month. There's nothing on the face of it that is remarkable about that, except for the fact that the service is conducted entirely by women. And the Kotel is administered by an ultra-Orthodox government office that believes women should not be allowed to pray in such a fashion. The ultra-Orthodox authority in Israel believes that women should not be permitted to pray alongside men, or vice versa for that matter. They should not be allowed to sing or chant, to read from Torah, or to lead the core prayers of our prayer service. So every month, there is a confrontation between the women of the wall, as they call themselves, and Haredi ultra-Orthodox protesters who are offended by the public prayer of these women at this holy site. The women of the wall and men who pray with them for part of the service have been physically attacked, restrained, spat on. They've had objects, including chairs, thrown at them. And they've had sacred objects, like prayer books, stolen from their hands and defaced by Haredi protesters. They have also been arrested, sometimes aggressively, by the authorities for various trumped-up charges like improper care of Torah scrolls. This morning was relatively tame. Yes, a young Haredi boy pulled the talit and kippah off of a man who was praying alongside the women. And also a large group of Haredi girls encircled the women of the wall and booed loudly throughout the service in an attempt to disrupt and drown out their voices. All in all, a fairly quiet Rosh Chodesh for the women of the wall who do this every month. More than once, people have asked me why praying at the Kotel is so important. What makes the Western Wall so special? I can answer from my own personal experience, but also from a more philosophical point of view. 
I can remember the first time I prayed at the Kotel vividly. At the time, I had not even begun to think about the possibility of becoming a rabbi, although it may have been one of the experiences that led me here today. I approached through the large, flat plaza. It was the afternoon. The sun was warm or maybe even hot. I was not uncomfortable. I can still recall the lapping waves of reverence that I felt wash over me as I approached, like wading into an ocean of holiness. I slowed as I got nearer, and I wondered if I was doing it right. Is there some special ritual that I'm supposed to do to mark the occasion? Am I supposed to just go right up to the wall? I stood in front of the hotel, fumbling and reciting half-remembered fragments of prayers that seemed appropriate at the moment. I reached out. My palm, my palm was against the flesh of the stone, and it felt warm, deep down warm, like a living thing, like a mother's hug or the body of God. I'm told that not everyone has a religious experience at the Kotel, but for me, that first time really was. Looking back, I wonder why I felt the way that I did. What made this place so special? It's built out of stacked stones that were manually cut from the quarry and carried to their current spot during the lifetime of Israeli kings and prophets. But the stones themselves were not meant to be holy. They are part of a retaining wall surrounding a large leveled platform matching the highest point of the bedrock in the hilly, the hilly city of Jerusalem. It is said that this high stone was the stone that Jacob laid on when he had his famous dream of angels going up and coming down the ladder. It's said that this is the spot where God sent another angel to stay the hand of Abraham and to offer up a ram in place of his son Isaac, teaching the eternal value of human life. It's the spot where a hundred, a thousand years later, although still 3,000 years ago for us, Solomon would build the first temple of the Jewish people. That temple marked a new permanence for us. We were born a wandering people, Abraham and Sarah wandered, as did Rebecca and Isaac with her. And all of our ancestors, from Jacob to the twelve tribes to the judges and prophets and kings, our holy place was movable. A wilderness tabernacle until the temple was built. Before Solomon could build the temple, he first had to construct a level plaza around the highest point of the hilltop city. Before he could build a level plaza, he had to build a retaining wall around the edges, which is the Kotel that stands today. On that plaza, he built a temple and its courtyard. That temple became a permanent center for the Jewish people and an anchor to a wandering and dispersed people. That temple was destroyed, rebuilt, and then destroyed again, both times on the ninth day of Av, the month that begins today, 
Yet, even in its absence, we continued and still continue to turn toward it as a permanent spot to direct our prayers. When we bow down during our prayer service, even today we face the spot where the two temples once stood. Our ancient legends and prophecies tell us that someday that is the very spot where a third temple will be constructed, ushering in an age of peace and harmony around the world. Many Jews pray for the day when that third temple will be constructed, and some fringe groups are even preparing for it. But there, there's the rub. If a third temple is constructed, who would be in charge? Will it be some fringe cabal of Jews even more extreme than those who protest the women's monthly prayers at the Kotel? Will the construction of the temple mean a return to the agricultural sacrifices to communicate with God? To me, that seems like a big theological step backwards. The great innovation of Judaism is a God whose presence can be anywhere, whose gates of prayer are all around us and always ready to open. Will a new temple in Jerusalem mean reinstating the hierarchy of Levites and priests, of purity rituals and tithings? No, I don't want a third temple if it means all that. I don't want a war in my lifetime that will demolish the Dome of the Rock which stands there today. Perhaps that's why centuries ago the earliest Reformed Jews began to call our local places of worship temples. It was a statement of principle that we are not praying for a return to strange and ancient rituals that seem out of step with our understanding of God and the world. We're not waiting for a new temple to complete our prayers. Our temple is complete. Our prayers belong right here. From inside these walls, our words would reach God. This is our temple, the only one we need. So how do I square that with the feeling that I get praying at the Kotel? If I'm not waiting and praying for the temple to be rebuilt, what makes the Kotel holy for me? I'll tell you what I think it is. The temple grounded our people, even in the midst of wandering. When it was destroyed, that didn't change. We found new and better ways to pray that didn't rely on bringing agricultural products to a designated priestly class who make offerings on our behalf. But we still prayed in Jerusalem, at the Kotel, in the memory of our great history. We still face that spot when we prayed no matter where in the world we stood throughout the ages. Except for the dispersion after the Crusades, our people have always lived in Jerusalem and gathered at the Kotel in prayer. Under the rule of the British and the Ottomans, men and women prayed side by side at the Kotel. Under the rule of the Mamluks and the Abbasids and Umayyads, the Byzantines and Persians, we gathered at the Kotel. When in 1967, the Kotel was once again brought under the authority of the Jewish people. It was not just Orthodox Jews who celebrated, all Jews celebrated. The Kotel belongs to all of us because it is in all of our hearts. This week's Torah portion includes 
a description of the bounds of the Holy Land that our ancestors entered after 40 years of wandering. But what makes a land holy? Is it that its borders are listed in a holy book? Is it that an almighty force designated it for a certain holy people and their descendants? Or is it us? Are we the ones who make something holy? Do we, by our experiences, the experiences of our hearts and our collective passions, make places holy? Do we take a little plot of land and over thousands of years, over generations of prayer and tears, of aspirations and stories, make a place more holy than it was? And if so, did we also take a little plot of land near the west coast of Florida, on the north side of Swan, and make it holy? And if so, can we take that holiness out into the world, wherever we go, and seek to make every place a little bit more holy than it is right now? Shabbat Shalom.